Hey everybody and happy new year on the So We Speak podcast. Uh, this is our first podcast of 2020 and we're about to pass a pretty cool milestone. As we're recording right now and as you're listening, we've just passed 20,000 listens over 2019 moving wow. into 2020. So Great. that's a lot of listening and it we is. are really thankful for that. Uh, thanks to you guys for giving towards the end of the year. We had a really strong push there at the end of the year at a matching offer and we're really thankful to have made that, and uh, thankful for all of you guys that pitched in there. Tons of tons it's of people fund some great new initiatives in 2020. Yes, which we'll we'll talk about in the coming weeks, and I think you'll see some of the things coming in the in the next few weeks. But for today's podcast episode, we were sitting around talking about the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, and uh, in it seems like in every phase of life, 2019 was a pretty crazy year. Yeah. And it, this is probably about the sixth or seventh year that we've said that at the end of the year. It's like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, you see those memes on Twitter and Facebook and stuff, and it's like at the end of the year, you're like, if, if, if 2018 is anything like 2017, I don't know if I can handle it. It's like, yeah, I think they've been getting progressively crazier. And sometimes I wonder the impact of media on our lives if the years are getting any more crazy or we just know more about the craziness that's always been out there. But it definitely seems like... There's been more going on, some tragic deaths this year, obviously tons going on in politics, culture, church. What's your take on that? Yeah, actually, I I think that the pace of change has indeed increased, but what really multiplies that is the breadth of our knowledge of that change. Mm -hmm. So I do think more things happen now in 2019 than happened in 1869. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think what makes that exponentially more difficult is we have access to about a thousand times more knowledge Mm -hmm. of those things than we did in 1869. So given that uh, things are getting crazier, at least they're speeding up a little bit, uh, we want to take a look into 2020 and just talk about the trends that we're seeing, that we're paying attention to, the things that we're either looking forward to, the things that are on our minds headed into 2020. So... I want to kick off the first one and just say uh, there, there's going to be a election. I don't know if right. you know that. I heard uh, that we might be doing that. There's going to be an election in 2020. And for better or worse, my my sense is that for worse, that's going to color the rest of the year just like it colored most of 2019. It seems like people have been campaigning for 2020 since 2018. And in reality, they've been campaigning for 2020 since 2016. But that's true. That's going to be a pretty big event this year. What are you keeping in mind leading up to that? I think two two thoughts on that. Number one, I do think that the election cycles over the past oh two decades have slowly been getting longer and longer, and it's almost as though we are perpetually campaigning. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of weariness of people that you can't keep your adrenaline that high. Yeah. Uh, No matter how much the 24-7 media tries to whip things up, it's difficult to not have voter fatigue. I think that will play a part in the 2020 election. People are just going to say, you know, I'm just really tired of the crisis of the week. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll see voter fatigue. Yeah, I mean, we're moving to a cycle where it's the crisis of the afternoon. No, that's true. Um, You know, one thing I'm thinking is we're sitting here in January. 
the voting begins, the caucusing begins now, right? And Super Tuesday is only a few months away. Mm-hmm. But then we have the end of the primaries, the nominations. We have a full season of of voting on the candidates. But I remember in in last summer and in the fall, as as I'm writing the weekly speak, thinking, is this going to be a big deal come 2020? And I would say, in every case, no. Hmm. And it's funny to look back on that, because in the moment, you think things are so important and so big, and you think, how could this candidate ever recover from this, or is this how this person's going to be known? I mean, right. a, a great example of this is the lifespan of, of Beto O'Rourke's presidential candidacy. I mean, one moment, you're on the absolute top of the world with every profile, and Rolling Stones story, and you're standing on countertops, uh-huh. and the next you got a picture of you haven't shaved in a week, and you're watching TV with your cat. I mean, <laughs> that is American <laughs> politics right that now. That is true. Almost nothing from last year is really going to matter in voters' minds, other than the aggregate, right? When it comes to voting, and so one of the things I'm looking at in 2020 is it's really easy to get caught up in the moment, but to miss the year or the bigger things that are going on in our culture. Uh, it's You can just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, and it's like the boiling frog. You don't realize what you're being sucked into, the direction our culture is moving. And so one of the things I'm being mindful of is not to get so lost in the moment that we can't step back and see what's going on culture-wide. Right. I do think one of the trends uh, that we'll see in this that will continue, and I hope not, but I, I think it will get worse, is the pull to identify your faith with a party or a candidate, mm-hmm. as opposed to identifying our faith with certain issues that represent our values or worldview. I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure yeah. to say, well, all evangelical Christians need to line up with the Republican candidate, and mm-hmm. all progressive Christians need to line up with the Democratic candidate. I think that tendency will get uh, will continue, unfortunately. Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest issues of the year, is the, the ongoing question of what is an evangelical? Right. And there's been some great work done on this, some great writing done on this, but I think the question is still pretty persistent. Does evangelical mean a set of beliefs that certain relatively conservative Christians hold? Does evangelical mean a cultural voting block? Right. Does evangelical mean a Christian who identifies by their vote for Trump? What do we mean by evangelical? This is a huge question going into 2020, and it's a big question for us because on the one hand, do we want to be known as a voting block, or do we want to be known for what we actually believe? And I see a lot of causes that have contributed to this, and and it's not an individual thing. It's a group thing. As a group, what will evangelicals be in 2020? Right. You know, it's almost like today if I said to you, that person is Jewish. Mm-hmm. You don't actually know what I mean by that, mm-hmm. and nor do Jewish people. Ben Shapiro, for example, talks about this, an Orthodox Jew, and, right. and he's, he's absolutely right. Well, am I ethnically Jewish, meaning that I, I'm genetically you know, mm-hmm. traced to that, that lineage of people, or am I culturally Jewish, mm-hmm. meaning that I do very uniquely Jewish kinds of things 
uh, and follow that cultural tradition? Or am I religiously mm-hmm. Jewish? We really don't know what that means. And I think evangelical is a term that is in danger of going that direction. And I'm not 100% sure what to do about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, in some ways, and this is not, not to disrespect the Catholics, the Catholics have followed a similar pattern. So uh-huh. you still have a large amount of people identifying as Catholic who are working in government. And uh, what, what we saw in Nancy Pelosi's uh, tirade at that press conference a, a month ago was when somebody said, do you hate President Trump? And she took offense to that, saying, I'm a Catholic. I was raised not to hate people. I don't hate anyone. Well, that's interesting that she decided to stake a claim on that. But what I would argue is a more historic doctrine to the Catholic faith and to the Christian faith is being opposed to abortion, which Nancy Pelosi is obviously for abortion. So it's interesting where people stake out the cultural markers of what it means to be Jewish, Catholic, Evangelical, Christian. Because from one side on the Evangelical front, the accusation is, we saw this like in the Christianity Today editorial, the accusation is you call yourself an Evangelical, you have foregone your witness, which I want to talk about in a minute, what what witness means, so that you can have certain political favor, power, access, mm-hmm. judges, you know, whatever you, right. you want to, but you have chosen to abandon really important markers of the evangelical faith. And those things could be anything from civility and deportment on the one hand uh-huh. to racism and xenophobia on the other and, in, and everything in between. I would say those are probably the lightest and the heaviest charges levied against evangelicals. They've abandoned their religious beliefs, their constitutional beliefs, whatever. Um, That's an accusation that you haven't stuck by the boundary lines. But the more important question, I think, for individuals to ask is, what are the boundary lines? Not just to being an evangelical, being a Christian. Right. I agree. And I think that's important for this reason. Another prediction I have is that I think what we saw in 2019 was an accelerated deterioration of our political processes and institutions. Regardless of your point of view, I don't think there's any American today that would say our democratic institutions are stronger than they were one year ago, two years ago, five years Mm -hmm. ago. And so I see that going. It's like a, a person who's drowning and you've got, uh, you want to grab on to something. Well, you want to make sure you grab on to something that floats to a life uh, preserver rather than grabbing on to a cinder block. Because if we get too closely aligned to political processes, we are going to, our faith is going to be dragged down with those deteriorating institutions. So back to your question, what does that say about the borders? The problem I had with the Christianity Today article, I had several. But the biggest problem, that's just as obvious as it could be, is it was written in a very myopic fashion. You can't say the boundary is, you, you, you basically can't be a Republican because they don't do this. Well, guess what? You can't be a Democrat because they do that. In other words, you have to look at the scope. You're going to get a binary choice in November of 2020. And so 
this is an important question of how and where we draw boundaries and what are we actually holding on to here. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you vote for a candidate, does that mean you approve of everything that candidate stands for? Mm -hmm. I would argue that there's no way a Christian can do that. Right. In this environment. So I don't know if that sheds yeah. any light on this question. but Well, if I were going to put a fine point on that, and we'll talk about this a lot coming up to the election. Uh, this won't be our last take on it. But if I were to put a fine point on it, I think the, the situation that Christians find themselves in is if you're going to vote, and I think there are legitimate arguments about whether or not Christians need to vote mm-hmm. as citizens of the country. If you are going to vote... And there is no perfect candidate. What are the issues, personality traits, histories of candidates, you know, everything all together, that it is okay to lend your vote for, knowing that voting does not equal an endorsement of everything? Right. But of of all the issues, um, can you vote for a candidate who does this? Can you vote for a candidate that believes that? And the, the questions that Christians need to have is not, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to vote the party line because that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. The question now is, I'm going to vote for this candidate because I think it's the best option as a Christian, not just as a Republican, not just as a Democrat, not just as an independent. Um, because in that way, I think we preserve the ability to have a prophetic witness, to be law-abiding citizens to the extent that our conscience and our religion allows us to be, um, to, to, to fight for justice and, and flourishing in our communities. Mm-hmm. Our position has to be standing outside of all those things, looking in, and then doing what we can in the civic order where we can. And uh, that, that may mean different things for different people, and that's why we can argue about it, which we should. Right. Well, and I think uh, I'll just say this and leave it here because we're going to talk about this a lot on this podcast and in uh, blogs and on the website this year is I do think people are wrestling when I say uh, Christians are wrestling with, okay, I agree with that. Now, how does that play itself out? I've got a very murky environment. I've got a candidate who's really good on this issue and terrible on these four. I've got terrible character, but good policy in this sense. Uh, how do I Christianly navigate that weighing of things? That's one of the reasons So We Speak is here. How to think Christianly in the sometimes chaotic maelstrom. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we navigate our way through that? So obviously we won't do it in this podcast, but that is a topic that I think we will come back to over and over again throughout 2020. Definitely. Let me throw out another issue that I, I see in, in 2020 that, have, that I've been thinking about. <clears throat> when it comes to journalism and the news and the media, narratives and facts are being separated at a rate and a frequency that is alarming to me. Right. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one, uh, maybe the most obvious example that I've seen, and, and this is happening on both sides, but there are some ideological reasons why I see this happening on the far left more than you see it happening in the middle or on the near left and the near right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll we'll talk about the far right later. But the the far left, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went down to the border, there was all the stuff about the border, which if I'm making a prediction, 
I think the separation of families and cages and border stuff comes back probably this summer uh-huh. because that would be a convenient time to run that play right. uh, before the election. And that's not to say that there weren't some things that were done wrong, but when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez goes down there, she posts some pictures and says some things that people fact check and they find out, actually, this is not what's happening down here. This is factually inaccurate. Right. Well, not to be deterred by the fact checking, she says... It's better to be morally right than factually correct. Right. And I thought, if that is not a description of the way our media and a lot of these events that we're seeing play out, then I don't know what is. And what I want to say is, for people who believe in the truth, we believe in an objective truth. And that doesn't just mean the things that are in the Bible. Of course, we think that's the highest truth is what's written in the Bible. But as Christians, we actually believe in objective truth that corresponds to reality, that there is such a thing as historical fact, not just narratives of what happened in history, but there are historical facts, there are objective facts. One of the things that I'm, I'm worried about, I'm watching is the separation of historical and objective fact from moral narratives. I agree. Uh, that statement was really telling. It's better to be morally right than factually correct. That is the motto, if you stop and think about it, of every totalitarian regime in all of history. Mm-hmm. Because no one, from Stalin to Hitler to, you, think of your worst villain ever, thought they were moral monsters. Mm-hmm. We think they were moral monsters. They thought they were morally correct, and they thought that the ends justified the means, because mm-hmm. that's exactly what Ocasio-Cortez was saying, is right. the ends justify the means, and our ends are so noble that uh, the means are justifiable. Right. So we have a, we have a uh, complicated relationship with the truth as a society. We don't know that we can trust our institutions anymore. This is another part of this, is even for the people that are not just trying to establish a narrative as a power play, which I think is happening, there are also people who are wondering, how do I establish a narrative when I don't know what's actually true? And this is where I would take another example. Uh, this past weekend with the attacks in Iran, right? It, it was extremely difficult to find out what was happening. And we had no shortage of people who were willing to say what was happening, whether that be in uh, the missile strikes that people were talking, are these rockets, are these missiles, are people dead, are they not dead? What's going on here? And I I will say, when the defense of the Trump administration was, we had knowledge of an impending attack, and that's why we did it. Pompeo's going to go and testify about this next week. But when you've lived in a world for the last two and a half, three years where you're really not sure if you're ever going to find out if that justification was accurate or not, right. it makes it very difficult to trust the narrative that you're being told. Right. And so I'm actually not even making a, a judgment at all about whether or not that was true. What I'm saying is because of pressure from every side right now to separate being morally right and being factually correct, it's difficult to trust anyone. Right, and I think that is going to lead to a resurgence amongst millennials in particular. This is probably true for everyone, but I've been thinking about millennials. 
And the anxiety level amongst millennials is huge. Depression levels are huge. The polarization is big. I think there's a desire to find some kind of orientation, some kind of anchor, some kind of stability, like what am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to act? What opinion should I have on this? Mm -hmm. Who am I supporting in this? What is right in this situation? uh, I'm going to make a prediction, see if you agree with this, that the inability to establish the facts, at least easily, is going to lead to more tribalization, and I predict it will lead to radicalization. For example, I think the alt-right and the alt-left will both get bigger mm-hmm. in 2020. Because, if, frankly, if you don't know the truth, you need some kind of stability, and a tribe or a gang is your, is your best. I'll, I'll take your narrative because I need a safe right. haven in the storm. And the strongest narratives, think about it this way. Remember in Egypt? When the Arab Spring and the government fell, and you have all these factions, you've got people in Egypt wanting democracy. You got hey, guess who came up on on top? The Muslim Brotherhood, mm-hmm. the most radical faction there. I think the alt right and the alt left will grow in this this time of uncertainty. Yeah, but I also think there's an opportunity for the gospel mm-hmm. in that situation. I think people are actually going to be hungry in a post Christian environment for somebody to stand up and say. I don't just have a narrative. I actually have something that's true, and you can test it, and it works. I agree, and I think the opportunity for Christians to say something really unique in this environment is important that we grasp. We need to be able to do the level of analysis and the level of thinking Uh to present people with narratives that actually line up with facts. And so that means that we're actually not going to be able to be the first people to everything. Not right. that Christians are any danger of being first to the newest and coolest <laughs> trends most of the time, but whether that means on social media, whether that means in what we write, whether that means in having a considered opinion and having to hold something in your mind in dissonance for a while, we actually as Christians are more committed to the truth, and we have this underlying belief that the truth is going to win out because right. God has made the world in such a way that his word is true, the way that he wired us is true, the way that he's constructed the universe to work relationally between us and him is factually true. Uh All of that is going to line up eventually. But there's no guarantee it's going to line up immediately. Right. So as Christians, we trust that we can actually pursue the truth and we're going to end up in the right place. And so my prediction would be over the next five to ten years, you're going to see a higher emphasis on Christians engaging in science. Mm. One of the things that I think is so disturbing is how quickly the far left is abandoning their commitment to science. I mean, it seems like just yesterday we were being lectured by Richard Dawkins about how, you know, liberal, the liberal ideology is based completely on science and we Christians are ridiculous and anti-science and anti-nature and anti-biology. And it turns out when when the science runs into narratives like the transgender movement or uh-huh. other things that we've seen the past couple of years, those movements are very quick to jettison science. Right. Because they don't have the guarantee that the the correct ideology is going to add up with accurate data. We do have that. We do have that assurance. So as Christians, I think we need to pay more attention to 
lining up our narratives and our facts, which mm-hmm. is going to require patience. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I think we'll see a mini renaissance of Christians engaging in sciences that for the last 30 or 40 years, Christians have pretty much avoided right. uh, because of the worldview tension going on there. Yeah, it's, it's really ironic. On the one hand, think back to the evolution arguments, and it was cast as science is the enemy of religion or of faith. And now fast forward to the gender mm-hmm. arguments, and all of a sudden, religion and science are on the same side. Right. It's funny how these things work out, but I, I would expect to see more of that uh-huh. in 2020 and beyond. Let's talk about the church for a minute. Uh, things that we see going on in the church, things that we expect to happen. I'll tell you something I did not expect to happen, and that was to see Francis Chan come out and start dabbling with the transubstantiation. That uh, was interesting. Th- that that was strange. It's it's like all of a sudden he discovered Catholicism, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> you know, like has he been reading Yaroslav Pelikan or what? What's going on here? Uh, Francis Chan starts talking about this is my body. You know, for the history of the church, people believed this was his real body. And, of course, we'd want to step in there and say, for part of the history of the church, part of the Christians believed that it right. was his That's an actual accurate statement. body. That is historically accurate. Um, but there's obviously a wide spread of belief on that. What is the presence that's involved at the Eucharist uh, or the communion? I didn't expect that coming. What, what what are the things that you're expecting in the church in 2020? Well, I'll give you first. I'll give you a negative one. Uh, well, I first of all, I would expect to see more trends like what we saw with the United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Is basically you've gotten to the point where the pressure from the culture is so great that unity in differences of, of view on those issues are no longer tolerable. Mm-hmm. And they are no longer tolerable from those who are on the progressive, liberal, whichever, how you want to label that side. I'm not trying to be pejorative. I simply want to say the people that want to engage and compromise with the culture or believe the culture is right are no longer willing to have fellowship with those who do not. Mm -hmm. And so I think you'll see more of that happening. And kind of a corollary to that, I think we're going to see more and more popular megachurch preachers go off the rails of Orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I interpret that in this way. Those individuals were never founded very well on, use the dirty word, theology, Uh simply meaning the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. They were motivated by different things. I'm not saying that meant they didn't do good work, they weren't sincere, but you're going to see the stress cracks go down and there is no theological foundation. Do not be surprised if any of the pop evangelical megachurch pastors come up one day with a radically unorthodox idea. It it no longer will surprise me because I think the level of pressure is going to show the stress cracks. Have you resolved not to be surprised in 2020? Have you made that resolution? (laughs) I, I agree with you. I think the the core issue here is up until 10 years ago, it was socially acceptable, especially where we live in the middle of the country, uh-huh. to be both culturally sensitive and engaged and evangelical Christian. Very as, good point. As those two things have diverged, 
it's been obvious who is actually, we're all standing in the same place. Right. But it's become very obvious as to who is standing on which side of the divide, more right. committed to uh, being cool and accepted and doing a, a, a kind of ministry where you believe that people need to like and agree with you and see you as the exact same in order to minister to them, and people who don't believe that. And as those things have widened apart, now we're looking and seeing that there's a pretty big chasm in between believing what the Bible says about certain things and being socially acceptable on the other hand. And uh, mm-hmm. I think we're still seeing people who can't hold those two things together. As, as hard as they stretch, these two things are going apart from each other. And you have to let go with one hand or the other. And I would expect to see more of that in 2020. I agree. I think of it this way. It's like a person, you've probably done this before, where you've got one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat. Mm-hmm. And you can do that as long as the boat is somewhere close to the dock. Mm-hmm. And as the boat begins to move away, as the culture is moving farther and farther away from the tolerance of differences of opinion, you're going to find out where most of your weight is. Mm-hmm. Most of your weight is either on the dock or most of your weight's on the boat. Right. And But you're no longer going to be able to maintain that position any yeah. longer. And I think you're right. That is probably going to accelerate in 2020. I'll tell you something I'm excited about for the church in in 2020 is I I feel like as cities are growing. So if you look at the statistics of where people are living, more people are, are living in cities right. uh, than they are in uh, rural areas. C- urban church planting is not only growing numerically. I get the sense that urban church plants are doing better uh, as term in in terms of. They are making it, they're growing, they're engaging the urban cores. And I'm thinking uh, n- not just like Tim Keller in New York City, but right. a lot of churches I know that are in the urban cores of cities are doing really great work uh, with the urban poor, with race reconciliation, with adapting methods that are better suited for uh, downtown and midtown than they are for suburbs. Uh, right, and I think more people being willing to go and plant their lives in these big cities, and uh, doing really good gospel ministry there—that's something really exciting to me because that's where the people are. Right, um, not that people who don't live in in cities don't matter, but that that's been an unreached people group in some ways uh, for us in the church. Yeah, we have a real crisis coming in America, actually more than America, but let me just stick with America. This is something everybody knows, so let's just go one, two, three, and add them up and see where it adds. You basically have a concentration of labor in cities, and you have an increase in technology that needs less and less labor. Between robotics and artificial intelligence, you can already see on the horizon that basically we are on the precipice of a crisis of unemployability. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have a lot of people concentrated in cities who are not only unemployed, unemployable. So we are going to have a situation, I think, much like the first century, in that if you think about the margins of our society, the margins are going to get bigger Mm-hmm. And the people who are alienated in our society, I'm talking about economically and socially, is getting bigger. The church thrived in that environment because you basically come to people who technology has left them behind. They're very disoriented. They're looking for something to latch on to. And the gospel came and said, I want to talk to you about something deeper than this. 
So I do think urban church plants are going to have a very fertile field as you see a bigger disaffected class in America. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think there's never been an easier time to get good Christian resources, whether that's video teaching, whether that is uh, Kindle books, whether, you know, I know there have been some opportunities uh, that, that we've come into contact with where uh, whether it's your teaching or, or resources are being ex- exported around the globe, right. places you'd never imagine that they would be. And so whether that's us taking advantage of, of technology and teaching and instruction and discipleship resources here, or that's places where there never has been any resources before, uh, this is a great time in the church to get resources into the hands of the people that need it mm-hmm. and people that want to grow. And uh, that's an exciting thing I see in the church is the ability to send gospel rich, theologically accurate resources all over the globe. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. What do you think are going to be some of the trends uh, that, I mean, I know we at So We Speak watch very closely the trends in technology, not because our message needs to morph, but the way we deliver it needs to come to people in the way they're used to consuming information. Mm -hmm. How do you see people getting used to consuming information over the next few years. What is technology going to do to information consumption? You see the rise of, obviously, I mean, we all know the Netflix phenomenon. Everybody's got a streaming service today. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't very long ago that cable and movie mm-hmm. houses, in other words, models are continually being upset. And we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that the Netflix model, which seems like, wow, that's so dominant. Mm-hmm. Well, 10 years ago, Movie houses were dominant, mm-hmm. uh, content producers as well. And so what do you see on the horizon? How do you, do you see perpetual reinvention of the way we consume information? Well, one, one of the things I see, call me crazy here, is we have all these different streaming services, almost like channels. What somebody really needs to do is give you one monthly rate, and you get this little box that you install, and you pull up this menu button, where you can choose from Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu and YouTube <laughs> all in one. That's what I really think we need at uh-huh. this point. But, you know, from a serious standpoint, I think what those streaming services show us is how important visual and people-centric content is. And as much as I lament this, it's we just have to accept it and we have to use it for gospel purposes People are not reading as much as they used to. They are watching. They're Uh watching TV shows at a rate that we've never seen before. Movies are being made at a high production rate. Um, If you look at the social media platforms, it's the ones that have video, particularly video of people that are growing, that are uh, attracting people. Um, So I, I like to think that that uh, from a ministry standpoint, we need to be thinking hard about that visual, people-centric content. People want to learn uh, in relationships, which is part of the way that God made us. Uh-huh. And so we have the ability to facilitate, uh, I wouldn't say relationships, because I, I, I'm pretty pretty tied to the fact that the, the relationships the Bible is talking about are in person. 
but I think there's the ability to facilitate the growth that comes from relationships through all kinds of media content. Um, to put a limit on that, I would say probably not likely that we're getting a Snapchat or a TikTok in 2020, for so we speak. But <laughs> I could be I could be surprised. You know, the interesting thing is, and this is where I think the the church, the local church, is so crucial. Is right now you have online campuses, you have streaming, you have consumption of church uh, in many places, as many people virtually as are actually there. But I predict, and I predict within the decade that because of the pace of change, it will have come full circle and the new thing will be actually talking to people face to face and actually getting together. And you know what? People have decided there are these buildings called churches where you can go do meaningful things in person. That sounds crazy today, but it seems to me that we will end up back there. Sound kind of old when you say that. <laughs> we could just do a Google Hangout all together. We need to leave our houses. But yeah, I do think that people will rediscover the power of uh, relationship. I think the parish church model has a good chance of coming back. I do too. Uh, where you see, not not that we see necessarily less mega churches, but that we see even more of the hundred to two hundred person churches of people who live in the same neighborhood together or apartment complexes. Um, I'm even thinking in the, in the big urban centers of the world, would, could you have a, a house church feel in a single apartment building? Right, where exactly. Where you have That's a couple exactly thousand right. people who live there. You have a church of 100 people. They all live in the same building. Right. Um, I do think that we're going to see more of that. I think that would be a good development. So um, to, to wrap things up, uh, it's going to be an exciting year in 2020. Uh, we're not, neither one of us are big uh, New Year's resolution people. This year we had a wedding in the place where we would have been doing our, down our right. resolutions. That's my excuse. Uh, that's, yeah, that's what I'm sticking with. But I always take the beginning of the year to start a new Bible reading plan. Uh, what are you doing for Bible reading this year? Last year I did, uh, I think I mentioned this, the chronological Bible through the Bible in the year it was seven days. You had a reading each day, and they had arranged the Bible. You still read the whole Bible. They just arranged it, not in the order of the books, but as chronologically as they could, and I like that. This year, I'm uh, doing something a little different that my friend Lance Ward has done. It is a a five-day-a-week Bible reading plan. I think it's just called the five-day Bible reading plan for 2020, and it breaks the Bible up. So each day, I'm reading, for example, right now, I'm reading a couple of chapters in Genesis, reading a psalm, and reading a New Testament reading, which happens to be a chapter in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to read through the Bible in a year with the five-day-a-week plan, a little Old Testament, little New Testament, a little bit of Psalms. How about you? The, the past couple of years, I've done a plan that's similar. You start in four different places. You read about a chapter or two from each of those every day. So you start in Genesis uh, First Chronicles, Matthew, and Acts, I believe, is where hmm. you and you read the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once, and that's that was a really good plan for a lot of different reasons. I am a big advocate of switching up your Bible reading, so whether that's within your plan, out of your plan, I, I think you should have a plan mm-hmm. because I think most of the time when you don't, it starts out as something that sounds really spiritual that right. you just you just read you're just spirit led, yeah. and it ends up you never read your Bible, right? So. I, I am a big advocate of plans, but I'm also uh, an advocate of changing up your plan. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
This year, I'm going back to a straight-through-the-Bible plan. So I'm just reading it in the order you are that it's a written. bold man. And, no uh, break in the desert of Leviticus. No breaks. No. <laughs> uh, if you do it, uh, the plan that I'm on right now, you end up with about three, sometimes four chapters a day. Um, probably a little bit more when you get to the uh-huh. non-narrative right. sections. So I am comfortably in the middle of Genesis in an interesting part right now. We'll see how it goes when I get past that part. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think the most the the most life giving Bible readings I've done in the last couple of years have been times when, even in addition to a, a, a year long reading plan, I've set some goals that are more short term. So there was a, a great season where I was trying to read with a couple of other guys an epistle every day in its entirety. Yes. Uh, or we went through and did one of Paul's letters every week and read it every day of that week and then talked about it or. Um, when you sit down and, and you begin to do uh, the chronological or um, stitched together version of First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, right? Uh, you know th- those kinds of creative ways of just engaging the text, trying to see it a new way. The the reader versions of the Bible that that Crossway puts out, yeah, they don't have any verses. I did my Bible reading in one of those a couple years ago and loved it. Just yeah. because you don't know how much your mind stops and starts right. on it's, those. It's in it unintentionally framing the text for you. Yeah. Uh, unintentionally, but right. it does. So anyway, I, I try to, to uh, change it up a little bit. I'm doing a read through the Greek New Testament this year. I'm doing uh, that too. So you do about a chapter a day. Yeah, which is, which is, which is challenging nice. time-wise to find that time. But yeah. I did too. Maybe we ought to do that together. We probably should. Okay. Neither one of us have even remotely high enough level of Hebrew to do through the Hebrew. That Bible, is true, uh, but I'm okay with that. So, uh, we know one other thing I would encourage those in our our uh, listening audience that are feelers, in the sense that, you know, you, and I, I appreciate this. This is not facetious at all. You basically, you're like, gosh, you know, I hear that, but that structured approach of read this chapter every day and, you know, read a new chapter every day, and it just seems like it's a little rote and mechanical, and I do appreciate that. I understand it. I want to encourage you, though, in this way. Do you remember when Jesus, I suspect you will, remember this story? Jesus goes into the synagogue, and they bring him the scroll to read that week's scripture. The Jews divided the Torah, first five books of the Bible, up so that you would read a piece every day and you would read it all in a year. And they divided up the prophets, like Isaiah and and Jeremiah, into pieces. And if you read your daily portion, you would read through that every three years. And you may remember how remarkable it is. They unroll the reading for that day, and it happens to be Isaiah, and it happens to be the prophecy, and Jesus reads it and says, Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. What I would simply encourage you to say is God uses those rote, mechanical, day-in, day-out processes in some pretty powerful, miraculous ways. Mm -hmm. That's very true. So 2020 is going to be a great year. We're excited to talk through it and uh, podcast through it, do some video, some video teaching, obviously uh, write about it. Uh, but thanks guys for listening we're looking for a great year in 2020 and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast 
If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Oh, 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 o